Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artifacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. For Empire Line's 40th episode, Professor Craig Clunas dials in from London's Freud Museum to tell me about curating their latest exhibition, Freud and China, and shrinking the international networks of psychoanalysis. My name's Craig Clunas. I'm a retired art historian. I've taught at various universities um, in Britain. I've also worked as a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Uh, and I'm the curator of the exhibition Freud in China, currently on at the Freud Museum in London um, until the end of June. Born in 1856, Sigmund Freud is widely considered the founder of psychoanalysis. But can you tell me what is psychoanalysis and was it an international practice? It certainly very much becomes an international practice um, in Freud's lifetime and remains one to this day. And I think Freud's international fame in the in the latter part of his life is, is a part of the story that we're wanting to tell here. So Freud lived most of his life in Vienna. He wasn't in fact born there. He'd, he'd come from the, the provinces. In fact, he was born in what is now in the Czech Republic. Um, but he spent all of his adult life um, in Vienna. That's where he did his work. That's where he wrote most of his books. That's where he saw most of his patients. Uh, and he remained in Vienna when the Nazi regime uh, in Germany annexed Austria in 1938, a situation which put Freud and his family in immediate and very significant danger. Freud, of course, was Jewish, and that put him in danger. But psychoanalysis, uh, and the, if you like, the humanistic side of psychoanalysis, was also something that the Nazis absolutely um, had it in for and could not stand. So Freud is at great risk, uh, doubly. Um, and after great difficulty um, involving pressure from, from foreign ambassadors and the payment of an enormous tax bill, uh, Freud was able to bring uh, himself, his immediate family, uh, his wife, um, his daughter Anna, to London. They came to London where, where members of his family were already established. He had long-standing English connections. And so he came to London uh, in 1938. He lived in a couple of rented houses and then his family bought the house um, in Maresfield Gardens uh, near, near Finchley Road Tube Station in North London. And he lived there until his death just after the beginning of the Second World War in 1939. His uh, daughter, Anna, who is herself an extremely important psychoanalyst with a specialism in child psychology, she lived in the house down to her death in 1982 and it became the Freud Museum in 1986, preserving Freud's study and acting as a centre for the study of Freud, the study of psychoanalysis, the study of mental health more broadly. Freud's own ideas don't command universal uh, acceptance among people uh, who work in the fields of psychoanalysis, psychiatry, mental health. But these are areas concerned with what you might call in the broadest term human well-being, human health. He was trained initially as a doctor and he always thought of himself as a healer. In the latter part of his life, he starts to write a lot more about broader cultural and, and theoretical issues. But I think that initial sense of himself as a doctor is very important. When and how did 
Freud first come to engage with China then? How did he come to start collecting these objects? Freud started to collect antiquities uh, in the mid-1890s. And this is an event in his life which is very much connected with the death of his father in 1895. And we know he started to collect things and we know he started to collect principally Greek and Roman and Egyptian antiquities, things that were connected to the kinds of education he'd had growing up uh, in the 19th century. I think at that point in his life, he was also uh, beginning to collect some of the small Chinese jade items uh, that are now in the Freud Museum collection. So small carvings, usually figural carvings, but also small vessels in jade. Freud had a great love of of jewellery, carving and sculpture. Those are the main kinds of things that are in the Freud Museum. I think these jade carvings he collected uh, relatively, relatively early. In his introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, which he was delivering in the middle of the First World War, 1915-1916, he makes at least one reference to to Chinese culture in the form of an analogy he draws, and and this is interestingly a kind of mistaken analogy, between the Chinese uh, language uh, and the interpretation of dreams, and the interpretation of dreams uh, very much central to, to, to Freud's practice. In the last decade of his life, from 1930 to 1939, that seems to be the period um, when he started to really get interested in adding uh, Chinese antiquities, Buddhist sculpture, ceramic, earthenware tomb figures, supposedly of the Tang period, to add those to his collection. There's evidence of earlier interest, but we're really talking about late Freud, the Freud of the last 10 years of his life. One of the exhibition's highlights is neither his famous study nor his psychiatric couch, which are both on permanent display in the museum, but instead a very small, intricate jade screen that sat upon his desk. Can you tell me where this screen came from? It sat, along with a whole bunch of other antiquities, on Sigmund Freud's desk in his study in Vienna and right in the middle of his desk, right under his his eye line. And this uh, familiarity to him might have been one of the reasons that it is one of two objects which we know that Freud had a friend of his smuggle out of the apartment in Vienna after the Nazis took over Austria in 1938. Freud himself is trying to get himself and his family out of Austria. Um, He's also hoping to get his collection out, but it's unclear at this point whether this will be possible. He might be about to lose the whole collection and he gets uh, his friend, Marie Bonaparte, to smuggle two objects out of the apartment. Now, one of them is a small Greek bronze figure uh, of the goddess Athene, and it's kind of relatively easy to understand why he would choose that. It's more enigmatic as to why he chose this jade object, but the fact that he chose one of this jade object, so if if you like, 50% of the the two objects that that she she saved for him, I think that tells us that Chinese objects, although they're not the most numerically large part of his collection, they had a significance and an importance for him that perhaps hasn't been recognised up till now and that the exhibition tries to make visible to people. 
Some have suggested that this object draws quite heavily from nature in its design. Do you think that it refers to Chinese Taoism or Buddhism? These are formalized flower patterns which exist on a whole load of Chinese decorative arts of the 19th and 20th century. So there are lotuses.、Uh, I don't think a Chinese viewer would have seen this object as being particularly loaded with、um, symbolic or, or, or religious meanings. What Freud made of it, we don't quite know, but I think it's pretty safe to say that Freud doesn't seem to have been massively interested in the religious aspect of of Chinese thought. One of the things that's fascinated me right from the beginning of this project is that Freud was clearly a keen collector of Chinese things, but despite being a very a voracious reader of、uh, material about archaeology. He doesn't seem to have read extensively about China. In fact, there are no books about Chinese thought in his extensive library. So the extent to which、uh, the decoration on an object like this meant anything to Freud, other than signalling its its Chinese ness, if you like, that's much more up in the air. And I think something that we will never know for sure, although it's think something that we can speculate about. This particular screen, along with many other objects from Freud's Chinese collection, often sat squarely in the eyeline of his patients. How did they impact his practice as a psychoanalyst? It doesn't have a practical function. An object like that, I would be a bit dubious about the idea that it has to stand on a scholar's desk. It could equally stand on a set of shelves in a lady's bedroom. I, I think it's our exotification of the thing that we always want to associate every Chinese object with. Chinese scholars—they—they've become, if you like, the figure of Chinese culture for us, and indeed for Chinese people today. So I, I think it might be a contemporary piece of exotification that ties everything to this idea of Chinese scholars. I think his objects impacted his practice、uh, in ways that we often don't understand. I think one of the important things to stress is that Freud's collection of antiquities. Was in his apartment only in his study and his consulting room where he saw his patients. So it wasn't like spread throughout the apartment. If you went, you know, in in Freud's dining room or Freud's bedroom or Freud's sitting room where he sat in the evening and read the newspaper, you wouldn't have seen any of these kind of things. This was a completely a different aesthetic. So it's his study and his consulting room that are crammed with his、um, collection of antiquities, and therefore they're very much part of his working life. And we have testimonial from、uh, patients of Freud's that he handled the objects. He used to show things to patients. He moved them around. Unfortunately, we don't have any testimony of him doing this specifically with any of the of the Chinese objects. But I think, given what we know about the way he treated the collection as a whole, and we have to see the Chinese part not as something separate, but as something integrated、um, into a much larger and very diverse collection of antiquities.、Um, I think we have to think of this as something that sparked Freud's imagination, helped him to think. Um, not in the sense of providing particular motifs, but in the sense of providing an environment in which he could do his intellectual work, interact with his patients, write his books. You describe how Freud's occasionally puzzling engagement with ideas about China affected his thought and surroundings. What sort of preconceptions did he have about the region and about Asia more widely? 
as you said, Freud was born in 1856, and I, and I think we have to see Freud very much as, as a man of the 19th century. And I think his ideas about Asia were by and large formed in the 19th century. I mean, he's growing up in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so there isn't that sort of direct colonial engagement with Asia that there would be for someone growing up um, in Britain or certainly in France or possibly even in, in the German Empire um, at that period. It's maybe interesting to think about, you know, the very multi-ethnic nature of the Habsburg Empire and the rising kind of ethnic nationalism within within the Habsburg Empire. How did that impact on Freud's thought? He he keeps his cards pretty close to his chest about his political views. Um, but I do think that his ideas about Asia are very much kind of 19th century ideas. There's an important piece of work on Freud um, given in a form of a lecture in London in 2002 by the, by the Palestinian um, intellectual and writer and critic and activist Edward Said called Freud and the Non-European. And although Freud's an extraordinary man in many ways, he's also a man who holds what you might call quite conventional views um, in many ways. Importantly, I think Freud is not a racial thinker. Indeed, Freud's psychoanalytic theories are very much posited on the notion of an absolutely common humanity. This is one of the most controversial things about his thought today. He very much claims that his ideas about how the mind works are universal to all human beings, therefore we're all the same, and therefore he's absolutely not a buyer into the kinds of, of ideas of kind of racial essentialism, which are, which are very popular in the 19th century. What he knows about China in the 19th century, as he's growing up, his principle go be what he's he's reading about in the newspapers so these ideas of, of kind of decadence what we might broadly call orientalist ideas I think they're going to be um, around in Freud's mind although he doesn't express them and he certainly doesn't express them in the particularly kind of negative and racialized forms that that many other um, thinkers of his generation and and his milieu do You've mentioned that Freud's library on China was quite limited. Should we consider him as perhaps endorsing Orientalism or exoticization of Asia? Did he adopt quite a colonial approach, perhaps, to collecting these artefacts? There's a kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. So if Freud had a huge library of things about China, we would say he was an Orientalist. The, the Saidian connection between uh, knowledge and power, uh, which is which is what Orientalism is, uh, you know, here we see it in his large library books about China. So we've got him banged to rights that way. So now he doesn't have any books about China. So we're saying, oh, he must have had an Orientalist attitude because he doesn't have any books about China. It seems to me that the total way of thinking about Asia in Freud's lifetime, everybody is an Orientalist. That's what thinking about the East is. It is Orientalism. Um, there's nobody sort of um, outside that. I mean, obviously there is resistance to that, there is pushback from that um, within Asia. You might want to say that in the broadest possible sense, the availability of Chinese objects in a global art market is related to colonialism and imperialism, but it's not just related to colonialism and imperialism, it's also related to Chinese engagement with these things.
Freud's often superficial fascination with Asia also extended to his pets. And I noticed the garden also had a cherry blossom in it when I visited. Can you tell me a little bit, though, about Yofi and Lun? Who were they? Freud started to uh, acquire dogs again in the last part of his life as as pets. Uh, and the breed of dog he had were chows, who were very much seen in, in the Western imagination as dogs that come from China. And these dogs had been being bred and being collected in Europe from the late 19th century. And a bit like Pekingese, it was the practice to give these dogs names that sounded, broadly speaking, Chinese. They're not real Chinese words or real Chinese names. So Yofi and Lun, um, these are two of his chows. He had a whole sequence of chows. They, they tended to not live very long. And, and the death of these dogs was a major part of, of Freud's emotional life throughout the 1930s. If we can extend the concept of material culture to include something animate, something living like a dog, I think we need to see the dogs as part of a Chinese uh, ambience that is part of Freud's collection. Again, I come back to the fact it's not the biggest part of his collection, it's not the only part of his collection, but it is a, a significant part and we don't understand the whole unless we understand this as part of it. What are some of the other standout objects from this exhibition for you then? This is maybe rather nerdy of me, but you know, one of the most exciting things in the exhibition for me is Freud's own copy of the Chinese translation of his introductory lectures in psychoanalysis, which he which he describes receiving um, in his diary in 1933. So this book was sent to him from Shanghai, where it's published, and it's been on the shelves in the Freud uh, Museum ever since. I find that exciting because it, it reminds us that Freud is looking at China, but China is looking at Freud um, in his lifetime as well. This is not a kind of one-way traffic of interest. Uh, I'm also interested in the uh, so-called Tang tomb figures. I mean, one thing I haven't said and, and that it's important to stress is that a high proportion of the Chinese antiquities in Freud's collection are fakes. They're objects made in China in the 90s and 20s and 30s in order to be sold to collectors, both in China and outside. So in a sense, that they're, they're modern Chinese objects. They don't come from the Tang dynasty, which is 618 to 906, a thousand years before Freud's time. They come from the 1920s. They come from the 1930s. You know, that very vibrant uh, period of culture that we often refer to as shorthand as, as the Republican period. And their presence in the collection, again, I think tells us something about the China that actually exists in Freud's lifetime that is perhaps different from ideas about kind of Chinese scholars or Buddhist imagery or whatever, whatever. There's a, there's a different China present in the collection as well, even if Freud himself wasn't always aware of that. That brings me on really nicely to one of my last questions. So Freud might be considered the father of psychoanalysis in the West, but this exhibition also explores the history of psychoanalysis in China. How does this particular screen help us to expand our global understanding and knowledge of the interconnections in psychoanalysis? How was Freud received over in China by psychologists, artists and writers? Freud is received in China at the same time as he's received in Britain. So his works are being translated into Chinese 
and at the same point as they're being translated into English. There's not, there's not a lot of a time lag. And they're also being translated into other languages as well. And certainly by the last few decades of his life, Freud is a global celebrity. He's one of a small number of people who are absolutely famous anywhere uh, in the world. So his works are being translated into Chinese. Uh, there is study of him in China, Chinese thinkers are, are arguing about him. Not everybody is saying, oh, wow, this is great. Some people are saying bits of this are great, but bits of it absolutely don't fit with, with Chinese thought or Chinese culture or, or Chinese senses of, of identity. But, but he's, he's in that conversation in the 20s and 30s for intellectuals and, and for a kind of broader reading public. Now, that broader reading public may well uh, not have read Freud's uh, uh, works, some of which are kind of technical and difficult to read and not easy to understand. It's just as important to think about what people globally think Freud is about. And of course, the thing that globally people think Freud is about is about sex, desire, about sexuality, uh, about very kind of controversial and troubling ideas like infant sexuality. But he's understood fairly or unfairly across the world as, as the man who says that it's all about sex. Um, and that definitely feeds into literary circles in, in China in the 20s and 30s. It's what makes Freud unacceptable to a number of, of leading Chinese thinkers at the time. Um, but he's very much part of that conversation in the 20s and 30s, becoming much less so um, after 1949 when uh, public discussion of Freud and his ideas is essentially not possible in China. Freud's work had been banned in the Soviet Union after a debate about it much earlier under Stalin. And then uh, with the creation of the People's Republic in 1949 and a huge kind of Soviet influence on the health system and the intellectual system in China, that, that Soviet prohibition on Freud uh, becomes uh, transferred to China, and, and Freud becomes an absence from the public conversation until the 1980s, when there's a huge kind of revival of interest. And Freud now in China, um, you know, is very much part of the conversation um, in all sorts of ways. People who are interested in him, people who are not interested in him, people who are pro him, people who are who are anti him. But but his ideas are very much kind of out there. New translations have have appeared since the 1980s. Um, so he becomes very much part of, of debate and discussion and argument of the interior life psychology uh, in China today. And Craig, you were the first scholar of Asian art to hold the chair of art history at Oxford. And you often situate Chinese artworks, including the novel Journey to the West, in a fantastic episode of BBC Radio 4's In Our Time, within wider transnational networks. Do you think that Asian and Chinese art remains overlooked as a source in rethinking imperial and colonial histories? I mean, you could say that historically, you know, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, there's been a lot more um, address and interest in China uh, and Chinese art outside China in, in Europe and North America in what we might broadly call the West than there has in other, in art from other parts of the world. 
I mean, I've always been interested in broadening art history. I mean, the way I've done it is through studying, is, is, is through working on China. The broadening of art history and, and the project of decolonizing art history isn't going to go forward by saying, well, we just need to focus on this one thing outside, outside Europe. And crucially, obviously, um, the project has to depend on not just thinking about the rest of the world as an add-on, but, but rethinking the way that the art of, of Europe has been studied. So there's no point in saying, you know, well, we'll just carry on doing the same old, same old with regard to the Western tradition. Oh, and by the way, we'll also do a bit about China or a bit about Japan or, or a, bit about, a bit about the Yoruba or a bit about the Aztecs. That's not going to get us anywhere. Craig, thank you ever so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Freud and China runs at the Freud Museum in London until the 26th of June 2022. Find out more about the exhibition in the episode notes. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.